morning, everyone. If you will turn with me to the scripture in which today's teaching is based, it comes from Genesis chapter 1. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to be reading various excerpts uh, between chapter 1 into chapter 2. All right. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. And it was so. God called the expanse sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. Land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living and moving thing with which the water teems according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. <clears throat> God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number, and fill the water in the seas, and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that move along the ground, and wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. God blessed them. This is verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. 
Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Verse 31. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth, chapter 2, verse 1, thus the heavens and the earth were complete, completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from the, all the work of creating that he had done. Now I'm going to skip to verse 19. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. And this is God's word. It's a lengthy word. If you're new or visiting, we're beginning a whole new series today. We're calling it Pastoral Prayers. Really, we didn't know what to call it. Um, we're going to be sharing, each of the pastors will be coming up and sharing just passages that were really meaningful to them during the course of the past year to help us maybe help you process, in many ways, mind the ore of loneliness, darkness, anxiety, anger, difficulty. Um, these are really our hopes and our prayers for you, so we're calling them pastoral prayers. Now, I'm going to kick it off today. This week, we made a slight adjustment to the schedule. We're going to, I'm going to be preaching next week as well. As I was going into this text, there was just so much there. I mean, we read a lot today. There's so much there. Uh, I'm, going to, I'm going to do it over two weeks. Uh, Genesis is the first book of the Bible. And in a sense, Genesis gives us a framework, a blueprint to understand what God created and why. What God created, why he created it, how it all fell apart, and how God healed it. Now, today we're going to go into, and now there's lots of debates when it comes to biblical creation. What does it really mean? There's lots of debates around that. If you have questions about that, I should preach the sermon on this several, several years ago, I believe, on Genesis 1. We're not going to go into that today. Today, I want to talk about the implications of that, the implications of biblical creation. In other words, if biblical creation is true, if God is our creator, what does it all mean for us? What does it all mean for his church? Now, if you look at Genesis chapter 1, i got to go into the framework a little bit. But if you look at Genesis chapter 1, it's got the marks of Hebrew poetry. There's parallelism. There's repetition. If you notice as we were reading, there was a lot of repetition in the text. In other words, uh, there, there's definitely poetic elements in chapter 1. I don't know if the whole chapter is, is poetic, but there are definitely poetic elements. Now, Genesis chapter 2, you don't have that at all. Genesis chapter 2 contains purely historical elements. And so there's this liberal view, a lot of liberal views that say maybe these two accounts are two completely different accounts written by more than one author. Now, remember, the liberal view, it doesn't see the Bible as infallible. It doesn't see the Bible as perfect, inerrant. It doesn't even see the Bible as a real account. 
And so it ends up being very irresponsible, very clumsy in the way it handles Genesis chapter 1. Never mind the fact that there are plenty of accounts in the Old Testament alone that contain poetic and historical elements of the same account, both written by the same author. Why is this passage there? Why is it here like this? It's to give us a framework, to give us a way to understand creation, not how the world was built, but what was built and why. And what God intends to do with it. So first we're going to look at the framework. Now, I did share this in the past sermon, but I'm going to kind of give you a very brief context. Let's walk through the days. Days one, two, and three, God creates kingdoms, realms. Day one, verse three, let there be light. And so verses four and five, you see day and night. Day 2, verse 6, let there be an expanse to separate the water and the sky. So verse 7, it was so. Day 3, verses 9 and 10, you see, let the dry ground appear, and it was so. There was land. There were kingdoms. The kingdoms are created first. Then, parallel to days 1 and 3, day 1, 2, 3, you have days 4, 5, and 6. God creates the kings to rule over these kingdoms. The rulers. In day one, he creates light and dark. That's the kingdom. Day four, parallel to that kingdom, verse 14, let there be lights to separate the day and the night. Let them serve as signs to mark the seasons and days and years. Let them be lights in the sky to give light to the earth. And so verse 16, God creates two great lights and he creates the stars. On day two, God creates an expanse between the water and the sky. These are the kingdoms. Day five, he creates the sea creatures and the birds. The rulers over these kingdoms. You see that? Day three, he creates land. Day six, he creates the animals. And in in verse 26, he says, let us make man in our image. So he creates these animals and he creates man. So you see this great expanse slowly Coming into day after day, moment by moment, we see then man being created. And he says about man, I want you to subdue the earth. I want you to rule over the earth. Man's job was what? To steward the earth. To take care. To cultivate the earth. To rule over the earth. Because he's reflecting the character, the image of God. And then on the seventh day, God rests. This is the blueprint. You see, there's this order to creation. There's a structure to creation. There's a framework to creation. God is showing us that creation has a kingdom structure, a covenantal structure between God and man, between man and the earth, between God and his kingdom. There's this love-binding, life-binding relationship between God and the world that he created. It's a life-binding relationship. It's covenantal. There are kingdoms, there are minor kings, these creatures, the animals, man, established as a king over all these kings to subdue the earth. We are vice kings, we are vice lords, and God, that makes God the Lord of lords and the king of kings. You see that? Lots of implications here. Lots of implications. What are they? I'm going to go through a few today. We're going to go through a few more next week. All very important. One, and it's not even all of them. It's all I can fit. They only give me like 25 minutes, and I violate it every week, okay? 
One, the priority of God. What's the message of the author here? In the beginning, God. Now, remember, in ancient times, people worshipped the sun, they worshipped the moon, the storms, the sea, powerful entities, but these are all created things. On one hand, God created beings to act as these minor kings. So there's this grandness, this splendor. We just sang about it. Oh, Lord, my God, right? How great, how awesome. There's this beauty and this greatness about nature and especially about human achievement. They're all kings in a sense, but we're all created. What does that mean? As great as these things are, as great as we may feel at times, If God is not in the rightful place as the ultimate king in your life, if he is not first in your life, you can't twist God's word to fit into your worldview. You have to take your life and fit it into the biblical worldview, God's worldview, his perspective, his intent, why he created the world, and what he intends to do with it. You see that? Because if you don't do that, life falls out of orbit. And when life falls out of orbit, just like the moon will fall, if it were to fall out of orbit, it will cause great devastation. If the earth were to fall out of orbit, there'll be great devastation. Look at the hierarchy. Adam was created to rule over everything. Later in chapter 2, we see this in verses 19 to 20. God brings these animals to Adam, and Adam, he's asked to name the animals. Why? Because the very act of naming something, we name our pets, we name, some people name their cars, we name our children for sure, we name companies when you found the company. Why? Because the very act of naming something is to own it. Verse 28, God's commands, God's ordinances, be fruitful. Increase in number. Subdue the earth. Rule over the earth. What God is saying is, you are my vice kings. I want you to be fruitful. I want you to flourish. I want you to build things and make things, and I want it to be successful. I want you to achieve things. If I am first in your life, you will rule over everything well, and so that's why there are laws. It reflects the character of God. We are created to reflect his image. If God is truly God in your life, not just one voice, but the voice. Not just one voice, but the ultimate voice. If he is truly God in your life, if he is the source of all of your security, if he is the source of your wisdom, if he is the source of your power, nothing else, friends, nothing else is going to control you. What others say about you, it won't ruin you. If you've disappointed people in your life, it won't ruin you. If your children are not as bright or as athletic or as popular, it won't ruin you. If you don't have enough wealth, if you don't have enough money, it won't ruin you. They're all important somewhat, but they're lesser. Because if your relationship with God is not the most important thing in your life, and so he's not the source of, your, of all that you value, of your worth, of your security, of your power. Something else will eventually come in and take over, and it will rule over you, and you will ultimately be controlled by everything. Love, intimacy, security, family, 
church, even church, career, your children, and you will work and you will work and you will slave to get these things that you're looking for. You will slave to maintain, to sustain, and it will ruin your life because your life will spin out of orbit of the priority of God in your life. He is the ultimate king. He is the ruler. He gave you your job. He gave you your career. But I hate my job. I hate my career. He gave it to you. He gave you your marriage. You didn't earn this amazing person next to you. He gave you your home. We are in Christ's church. It's covenantal. It's a life-binding, love-binding relationship between God and his people. That k- the king is, has bound up his joy in your joys. And you are bound to him in a way that the earth orbits around the sun lest it fall apart. The priority of God. The second implication is that every, mo- every moment in your life is important. It may not be dramatic. It may be mundane, but it's important. All of Genesis 1, what do you see? God, the king, what is he doing? He's working. He's building. He's creating with his own hands. And then you get to chapter 2, the seventh day, God rests from his work, the work of creating that he has done. That's what it says. There is rest. In chapter 1, verse 27, and later on chapter 2, what do you see? Male and female, he created them. Adam and Eve, there's family. Now think about this. Before sin ever even entered into the world, before we brought sin into the world, there's work. God is working. We think that work, our careers, our work, is a product of the fall. It wasn't. It was there since the beginning. There's rest. God rested. It's not because he was tired part of a framework. It's what he's modeling. This is deep satisfaction in his life. And so he rests. There's family, Adam and Eve. God establishes, God institutes family. And there's law, ordinances, be fruitful, multiply, increase in number, subdue the earth. There's law. There are ordinances, work, family, Rest, law, all four of these things existed before sin ever even entered the picture. Now, what does that mean? Your public life matters. Every moment, every decision. Your private life matters. Every moment, every thought, your work, whatever it is, there's a dignity in your work and it matters. How you steward your family, how you steward your relationships How you steward your rest. Sometimes we rest when we should be working and we work when we should be resting. How you steward that dynamic between your work and your rest. How you act, your decisions, what you're thinking, they all matter. That means that there is an eternal significance in what you do and how you do things. God worked. And just look at this passage. It's poetic in chapter 1. There's this beauty. There's this craftsmanship. And it's a song. He's working. He's humming. But 
More importantly, look at the joy in his life. Day one, it was good. Day two, it was good. Day three, it was good. With every passing day, it was good. It was good until it was very good, it says. The text says it was very good. Every moment, every decision, every thought is important. There's a dignity in everything. With every passing day, every work, you're just creating, you're just building. There's this intrinsic value in your work, in your family, in your rest. There's an intrinsic value to your public life and your private life. Success in any of these areas will never earn you God's favor. It will never earn you God's acceptance. It will never earn you salvation. But the very act of cultivating each of these areas will bring honor to the Lord. That includes your relationships. Will bring honor to the Lord and build your character, build your wisdom, build your maturity, build your skill, increase your joy, or it could damage your character and wisdom, your skill, your joy. How will it damage? Now, think about this. What is sin? Sin is placing anything above God in priority. That's really what it is. In any given moment, in any given decision, sin is placing God above anything else in priority. So when a man chose, uh, chooses to place other things, chooses to place himself above God, right, in a sense, because really what you're doing is you're saying, God is no longer my priority. I'm going to establish this as my priority for this moment. Right? When you take the priority of God out of your work, out of your family, out of your rest, out of your obedience, you may get any of these things, and you may say, this is God's blessing. But it will always result in brokenness, and it is a curse. Life will start to fall apart. And so in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve chose to place their own desires above God's desire for them, God's ordinances. Beginning in verses 15 to 16, what do you see? The curse. God curses marriage, family. That's why all families are broken. Verses 17 18, God curses work. Cursed is the ground because of you. In other words, you're going to work and you're going to work and the ground will never produce. It's why sometimes you could pour into your careers and you you don't feel like you're getting anywhere. Because work is cursed. It's why we're slaves to our work. Every one of these things, work, rest, family, law, they can be a slave. They can be a slave driver. You can be a slave to them. Verse 19, he says, you will work until you die. In other words, there will never be any rest for you. Why? Because verse 17, because you listened to your wife, because you listened to these other voices in your life, they became more important. You disregarded my character, you stopped trusting my faithfulness, you disregarded my command, my law. We all have to be cautious when we complain. We all have to be cautious when we grumble because in the grumble lie great temptations to take your eyes off of those mundane moments where you are called to be faithful, to steward well at home or at work, even in your rest, 
Always remembering and placing God, your king, as the ultimate priority. Every thought, every decision, every act, every moment in your life. In our generation, we just kind of, our generation today, we just kind of, it's the microwave generation, right? We just want to, we just expect things without working for them. But look at God. God! He's cultivating day after day, day to day, and he takes joy not necessarily in the success. He says, I created this. It's good. Day to day. That means day to day family, day to day work, day to day relationships. Like a garden, you are cultivating, you're creating, and you are building. There's an importance, a significance, an eternal significance. In everything that we do, in everything that you build, take joy. Build it well. There's great responsibility there. Third, there's rest. You can rest from your work. God makes everything over and over. After each, set, after each day, he says, it is good. Day two, it is good. Day three, it is good. He's a creator. He's an architect. He's a builder. He's a worker. He's in construction. Genesis chapter 1 is a song still. Now, you don't associate construction workers with singing. A kind of, I suppose, hi-ho, hi-ho, right? Something like that. Genesis 1 is a song of creation. And so God is an artist, and he is a poet, and he is a singer, and he, and he is a farmer, and he is a planter, and he is a builder, and he is just enjoying things. It is good. It is very good. You know, in the text, that's the word benediction, which means it's a good word. Chapter 1, verse, four, uh, verse 26, we are created in the image of God. What does that mean? We're meant to work. We're meant to reflect the image of God, our creator. That's why we're, not ha- we're, happy when we're, when we're happy when we're working. And we're all looking for and pursuing things that are meaningful for us. You know why? It's built into your spiritual DNA. It's built into your spirit. We're constantly thinking about our role and our place in our work. What am I doing? Is it fruitful? Am I thriving? Will I thrive? We're called to create. We're called to build. We're called to innovate. But when the priority of God is taken away, there's an uncertainty and an anxiety, a discontent and a distrust that God is king still over these things that he has called you to steward. There's a dignity in everything that you do. That means that you are called to exercise these gifts that God has given you, these talents that he has given you. You are called to exercise your curiosity, but with God as your priority. God says, I want you to fill the earth. I want you to increase in number. I want you to subdue the earth. That means that we're called to multiply. That means that we're called to expand. God is a strategist. It's not just reserved for business-minded people, but there it is. You're called to build. You're called to expand. You're called to grow and increase. You're called to study and study well. You're called to think, use your mind, use your strength, understand the world. Look at what God does to the world. He creates it. He fills it. He empowers others. He rules. He develops things, and he's enjoying over and over. He's just enjoying it. 
That means that the world was created for us to enjoy. God saw all that he had made, and it was good. That means as Christians, one, it's possible to enjoy what you have here on earth. And two, it's possible to work on something and to truly be human is to enjoy it without finding your identity in it. Now, it's very difficult to enjoy something without finding our identity in it, but when you do that, you're actually less human. When you're placing your identity into something, you have been, you're, you're doing something that God didn't design you to do. That's the beginning of falling out of orbit. You see that? We're called to enjoy what you have. We're called to work on things and enjoy it without finding, without placing our identity, our sense of worth in it. But I need to make it better. I'm called to make it better, right? I'm called to fix things. Hmm. If God is your priority, you can trust the king. You can trust God who owns all things, sustains all things, governs the world. That includes what you've done. You are not the exception to the rule. You know what anxiety is? Anxiety is, I've got all this pressure because I've got all this stuff that God gave me. He may not be for my good. He may get it wrong because I need to go here. I need to get there. He may not be for my good. He may get it wrong. He may not be listening here. He may not have gotten the memo. Inherent in all of us because of our sin is a distrust that God is king. And when you start to distrust your king, what are you saying? There is a rebellion that is going on inside the heart that says, I need to take over. That is the root of anxiety. You're falling out of orbit. And it leads to devastation. Disorder. That's the fall. Because if you truly trust in a God who created the universe, owns the universe, sustains the universe, governs the universe, and everything you've done, you can soulfully rest. You may not have finished on Friday, but you can rest. You can look back at everything that you've created and say, it's good. God created you to rest and to reflect his character. We need it. Why do we struggle so much with rest today? I mean, why can't we smell the roses that we've planted? Why can't we enjoy creation? It's because you're trying to earn your way into the favor of other people through the things that you've done. You're still finding your sense of worth in the approval of other people. Your parents, your boss, your neighbors, your children, even your children, whom God called you to steward over, your peers, your colleagues, your significant others. Why? Because those things are your real priority. Those things are the real kings, the real lords over your lives. And as a result, we're controlled by them. 
And when you place your identity, when you place your faith in these things to save you, there will never be any rest because all these other things will demand you to work. God is the only God who calls you to rest. He's the only master who says, I'm more concerned about your rest. And what happens is when we fall out of orbit, eventually we lose ourselves. All that's left of you is your work. But a Christian at the end of the day, a Christian at the end of the week, is able to look at everything that he's done, even the things that he's undone. It's hard for me. A guy like me, it's very hard to look at the things that I've undone. Because I know if I just give it a little bit more time, I can finish. To be able to close the laptop and say, it's good. I'm satisfied. Even in failure. And, you know, micro-failures are always a lot easier to deal with than the macro failures. But you can ultimately say, God is in it. He is for me. For his glory. He will never let his, he created me for his glory. He will never let his glory go to shame. He is for my good. I can rest in that. Do you believe it? Let's pray. No, no, we're not going to pray yet. I mean, if you've been in the metro even a few times, did you like the sermon? Did it get you? Did it move you? Because if I let you go with this, it's a horrible sermon. It will kill you. It will ruin you. This sermon is incomplete until I'm able to share with you how to rest, how to work and not have that become your priority how to, to, to build your family, to rest, to obey God's law without making it your identity. How do you do it? You got to look to the ultimate king. You got to look to the ultimate king, Jesus Christ. Look at Jesus Christ on the cross. On the cross, what do you see? Jesus is working and he's sweating and he's just crying. He's groaning. He can't breathe. He says, there's so much pressure, you know? Genesis 3 is the curse. God said, I'm gonna, you're going to work, you're going to slave, and you're still going to get thorns. You're going to work hard, and there will be thorns and thistles. So on the cross, Jesus gets a crown of thorns. On the cross, he experiences cosmic restlessness, the ultimate restlessness Because on the cross, when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the only time that Jesus Christ does not refer to God as his father. You know what that means? It's the brokenness of family. He's experiencing it. Cosmic fatherlessness on the cross. Brokenness of family. On the cross, Jesus Christ, God, the creator, the sustainer, he's experiencing the wrath of God. And so he's becoming decreated so that we can be recreated. Recreation. Rest. It's more important than any other rest that you would pursue. That means that there is a new calling. There is new meaning. There is new satisfaction. It is good. Jesus Christ experienced the ultimate curse, the separation from God, so that we would experience the ultimate reconciliation. We become children of God we are brought into his family. There's the healing of family. You want a perfect family? You've got to start with the ultimate family. You've got to look to the Trinity. And God said, let us 
create man, bring you in. You see that? Then you will have the power. Then you will have the understanding to steward what it means to have a good family. Jesus Christ, the most obedient person in the world, never violated God's command, experiences the wrath of God so that we will experience the love of God, the acceptance of God, the newness, union in Christ. In him, we get what? God looks at you and he says, it is good. The benediction. God is totally satisfied in you. There is no failure that you can, I guess, fail in, right, that you can do. There is no failure you can commit. There's no, there's nothing in the world that could ever separate you from the love of God. He is totally and utterly satisfied with you. Does that get you? Does that move you? Because if it does, that's the end of working to get his approval. That working to get your boss's approval, that working to compete with others to get ahead is a spiritual thing. Someone's favor, it's a spiritual thing. You will never be able to rest when you do that. You'll always feel like you have to work to earn someone's favor. It's spiritual. How can you enjoy something while supremely enjoying the love of the Father in your work, in your family, in your rest, in your obedience? Look at what the Father enjoys. He enjoys creating you. He enjoys redeeming you. God made it his priority to save you. So much so that he sent his one and only son to die on the cross and take on his wrath for our sins. Christ's priority was the honor of God and the salvation of his people. And when you see that Jesus' priority was you, you can look to the cross and see him as your priority. When you see that Jesus made you his ultimate priority to to the point where he would give up his life, Now you know the extent of God's covenant with you. It's life-binding. He died. It's love-binding. His heart was broken on the cross when he lost the central part of his orbit. He said, my life is falling out of orbit, and I'm working, and it will fail. And God worked through that to be able to say at the end, it is good. You. That's why we're here. Friends, we're going to go into this more deeply next week. But I want to leave you with an encouragement, and that is, it's so easy for us to go, or a challenge, rather. It's so easy for us to enter into a week and just get right back into the swing of things and forget while you were created, what's been broken in us. Stop trying to work so hard to fix it yourself. You know how you do it? You rest in Christ. And you lean on his word, what he says as his promise to you. And you place him as your priority in your decision making. Place him as your ultimate priority in your relationships. Being right is not the priority. If it was about being right, we'd all be dead. Right? God held you a value. Your work is not your ultimate priority. Your work 
is going to fail you more than you serve it. Place God as your ultimate priority even in your work and you will be able to rest because you can say to your work, you're important, but you're not ultimate. You can say to your children, you are important, but you're not ultimate. You can say to your spouse, I love you, but not ultimately. I have a first love. And when you order things like that and let that shape you, when you really take that in and let that shape you, you'll find the framework of God, that covenantal healing of God, the love of God being demonstrated in your family, in your work, in your rest. And there will be a deep soulfulness in all these things. That's my prayer for you. That's my prayer during this past year for you. That's my prayer as I think about you in the year ahead with mental illnesses at a peak, with people struggling to just now reconnect. Will you place the Lord as the ultimate priority in your life? Let's pray.